0: I'm sort of sorry it's over. Hey, good morning, First Family. How are you today? Hey, what a blessing to be together, isn't it? Is it just me or does it feel like it's been a long time since we were here? This last week, was it funky or was it just at my house? What kind of week have we had? Aren't you glad it's just for a little while? Today's passage that my friend Justin read so well is from Revelation 21. We talked a few weeks ago about how we were pegging out on the word of warning side. When we got to Revelation 19 and the end of chapter 20, we said, this is as far that direction as it can possibly go. It can't get any more warning-ish. Well, today we're going to peg it out on the other side. We're going to peg it out to the word of encouragement, the word of blessing, the word of hope, the word of life, the word of encouragement. We're talking about heaven today. Now, some of you are going to hear this talk and you're going to go home and say, well, that was disappointing. Not that that's unusual for being in this church. I'll say that. But let's be clear. There are things about heaven that are absent from this passage. And you're going to go home saying, "But, but where is fill in whatever you're looking for? I I, I beg to tell you, friends and family, that this, this description of heaven is the best John has to offer, but it is not enough to sum up the experience that he had. So if you go home today and you're reading over this passage later, and I hope you will, and you would say, I'd like to know more about heaven, wouldn't we all? Here's what I want you to do before we do anything else. I want you to write just somewhere on your note page, heaven, and then write an equal sign, and then write the place where God is. For friends, that's what makes a heaven. One of the things that I'll remember till the day I go home to be with the Lord is a conversation I had with my friend Terry Williamson not long before the Lord called him home. I didn't ask his family's permission. I hope they don't mind me sharing this. So I asked Terry, Terry, do you think there will be baseball in heaven? I'll never forget Terry's response. He put his fist down on the hospital bed and said, there better be. I didn't ask him what he would do if if there wasn't. But let's be clear, friends. Sometimes what we think of in heaven is preference based what makes heaven heaven is god's presence not what i want friends as we begin let's take a moment and pray shall we gracious jesus we are grateful today for your presence among us and for heaven itself for putting us here together to walk the road until we get there I ask now, Lord, you would open our hearts and minds and that you would wrap your warm embrace around us with just this small glimpse of what heaven will be like. Let us, Lord, not so eagerly run to what we think of as heaven and let us instead run to what is in your presence, and that's enough. Would you do your work now, Lord Jesus, for here is where the invitation really begins. Do it in our lives, Lord, and transform us, change us, mold us, shape us more and more into your image today. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen. So when we open this passage, we have a rare display of our future. Jesus speaks about heaven sporadically. We find it sprinkled in the Gospels. John, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul tells us, In 2 Corinthians 12, about his trip, we presume it's his trip. It's a third heaven that he ascends to. He doesn't describe it to himself. He just simply says, a person I know. And John, in his testimony that he gives us here, he reflects something. He reflects his best effort at describing the journey that he took what it comes to is quite simply just the new jerusalem the new jerusalem is described from chapter 21 verse 9 all the way down to the end of this chapter in this we find a familiar face who will take us through this new jerusalem this new jerusalem that is different than the one we might have anticipated this new jerusalem which will have features that we can only imagine from this side of it. This new Jerusalem that will be what it is because of the presence of God, not because of all the things that are in this description. This new Jerusalem is introduced to us by a familiar angel. He steps forward to introduce the bride, the holy city. He's the same angel that we met back in Revelation 15. When we saw him there, he was with the bowls. You remember that talk? It's way back in the fall. Now, the bowls, they were pouring out the bowls of wrath and, and all kinds of terrible things. This same angel, according to verse 9, is now back. And he comes with a very different message. Come, he says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away verse 10 says to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god having the glory of god its radiance like a most rare jewel like jasper clear as crystal great high wall and 12 gates and its gates were 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of israel were inscribed on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates on the west three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles here friends here is where we get our first glimpse into what the city will look like and notice that we already know something about it on that great high mountain think vince gill go rest high on that mountain if you're one who loves country western music and you don't know that song, do yourself a favor and Google it and go home and listen to it today. You'll be glad you did. Or if you've been to very many funerals, chances are good you've heard it there. This new Jerusalem, then, is in a high place. It's coming down out of heaven from God, and it has, as its light source, the glory of God. So the glory of God, then, has some measure of radiance. A radiance that we see back in, if you're reading in our Bible reading plan, Exodus 21 and chapter 20. What happens when God comes to Moses on the mountain? Moses is face to face with God, right? And so Moses comes down from the mountain and what happens? He has soaked in that glory and the people around him they can't bear to look at it so they hide their faces from him and so what do they do they put a sack over Moses to dampen the glory friends I want to tell you when we get to this place right here when we get to verse 11 we won't need a sack anymore this is good news and this 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 rare jewel that it is The radiance that it reflects is like jasper, our first precious stone. Now, I don't know much about precious stones, but I did a little research. What I'm understanding is that jasper in its purest form is indeed clear. As we find it, as we use it, that's how it looks. It has some of the same qualities that we find in diamonds, something we know much more about. We also know, according to verse 12, the city has a great high wall. And cut into that wall, it has 12 gates. Three on the north, three on the east, three on the south, three on the west. Now you might say, why does it need a wall? A wall is to hold out. Well, I'm not sure about that, but let's just suggest this. Here is where God puts something familiar for the symbolism that he chooses to employ. He uses these three gates, these sets of three, if you will, to reflect his passion for this number. Verse 14, the wall of the city also had 12 foundations. And on those foundations were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now you might say, and we'll take this up tonight in 5 at 5, you might say, but Darren, one of those 12 fell. Judas Iscariot was one of those 12. Yes, and you would be quite right to say so. One of those 12 did indeed fall. But let's be clear also, he was replaced. Go to Acts chapter 1 and you'll see his replacement brought in. Moreover, we might suggest there are 13 if we include the Apostle Paul who encountered Jesus in Acts 9 on the Damascus Road. But for the point of clarity here, verse 14 intends us to connect with verse 11 the 12 apostles of the new testament connect with the 12 tribes of israel in the old the gates represent those those entry points for the people of god and the the foundation stones they they are some of what god used to erect and support the city that he had in mind to build from all along oh friends This is where it gets rich and good. As the familiar angel steps forward to introduce us, we see something almost miraculous. The city isn't the home of the bride. The city is the bride. The city herself is the bride. The bride is the one for whom the lamb gave his life. She has been granted a home, a place where she has never been, but has been carefully prepared for her before the foundations of the world were laid. As the bride, she is given special accord and treatment by the groom. Let's read verse 15 and following, and you'll see what I mean. And the one who spoke with me, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with a rod, 1,200 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysophus, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, gentlemen, let me speak to you just a minute about how you prepared the home that you brought your bride to. I want to tell you a little story about a friend of mine, and it really is a friend, not just somebody that I'm making up. (laughs) He convinced this girl to marry him, which was miraculous all by itself. Let's just pause and say that. He convinced this girl to marry him and did not talk with her about where they would live after the wedding. And so he had essentially a little tool shed that was behind his parents' home that he had converted into a home for himself. It was roughly 500 square feet. Now, for a bachelor's place to live, it was about right. But to bring a lady into that place was something less than desirable. When he delivered her to this place and carried her across the threshold, he set her down on her feet, so pleased to have his bride home. She burst into tears and turned around and went right back out. Let me ask you, and this is a question that I, I, I hope for a response from, how would you feel would, would, would you stay? Yeah? Yeah? Some would. I'm glad I have some honest ones. I wouldn't have. I'd have said, if this is the best preparation you've done for me, then you really didn't want me in the first place. Now, you might say, well, that's a little harsh, Darren. No, I'm just comparing it to the home that waits ahead for us. I want you to see this, friends. This is what waits for us. These verses that I read from verse 15 to verse 21 They describe the city of heaven as best we have it anywhere in Scripture. And did you notice something? No treasure was spared. Nothing that we would find valuable was laid aside. Not only that, it was used in excess. But I want you to see the prime feature, the one that makes it what it is. The glory of God is its prime feature. Don't miss that part, friends. Remember what we did at the beginning? Heaven equals the place where God is. The opposite is also true. Hell is where God is not. I encourage you, friends, to recognize that the glory of God is not in the jewels. It's not in the streets of gold. It's not in the the carnelian. It's not in the, the pearl gates. It's not in any of those things that we find valuable. It is in the glory of God. The city comes down from above as if descending from the hand of God himself, because indeed it is. As the city descends, it is received. It is received. The city descends from above as if descending from the hand of God. As God created Eden, so he created the new Jerusalem. As God created Eden according to his plan... So he created the new Jerusalem where he welcomes his bride home to words sometimes don't do justice. Now there are familiar patterns and familiar elements that God uses here. Familiar patterns and elements that people would understand. Foundations, walls, gates. These are all standard elements of the first century city. But what makes this one extraordinary is its size. I want you to notice that 1,200 stadia, that's roughly 1,500 miles, approximately. Let's pause here for a moment and let me tell you a little story that happened about 75 years ago. There were a group of students that were at Harvard that decided they would try an experiment. They were working on measurements. and and using standardized measurements. And they said, well, what if we standardize the measurement with a non-standard measurable device? Okay, what what does that look? Well, they said in philosophy, we could use someone as the standard measuring device. They found a freshman. His name was Smoot, S-M-O-O-T, Smoot. And they said, we could in theory use Smoot as our measuring device. And so they took Mr. Smoot, with his permission, laid him down on the ground, and began to measure the bridge that connects Boston to to Charleston, and that they put them across from one another. And they began to measure him, and they marked where his feet, and they marked where his head, and they said, okay, Fred, get up and move, and put your feet down where your head was, and then we'll measure again. And then we'll do it again. And then we'll do it again. And eventually Fred got tired of getting up and down. And so they built a stick that was exactly one smoot long. And they used that smoot stick to measure how long the bridge was. If you go to Boston today and you ask for a particular marking on that bridge, you will find that they still use 75 years later the smoot markings to determine where on the bridge they are. Now, you might say, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why would they be so foolish? I don't know. But what I do know is that they can tell you exactly how many smoot's long that bridge is. What I want you to see is this city, because we can tell you how many stadia it is, even if we don't know. How many feet that is or miles. We know it's 12,000 stadia. There's that number again, the significance of 12. Now there's been a lot said and a lot written about it, but we quite frankly do not know. All we know is that it is something that God uses and uses often. Much has been suggested about four times three as the reason that is significant and perhaps that's right but scripture never says, so we're left to our own devices. The significance of the 12 and the 12,000. I want you to, to draw this into your thinking because when we see the city for what it is, we must acknowledge that it is much bigger than anything we can encompass in our minds and hearts. Notice also the bejeweled gates, three on each side. The gates are never closed, but they're there just the same. They reflect the royalty and the beauty of this new Eden. Each a single pearl. Friends, I want to tell you, that's some kind of pearl. I'd like to see the oyster they got it out of. Notice also the measure of the city. If we draw it as a cube, and there's some suggestions about that, and we say that it is as wide as it is long and as high as it is high, long, wide, then it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 miles square and 1,500 miles high. To drive from here to Washington DC is approximately 1,700 miles. I want you to imagine if you can, hitting the city limits of Midland, going east, and finding a city, that will take you more than a day if you didn't stop to drive across it, and then to look up and realize that city is just as tall as it is long. If we take a cubit as 18 inches, then the walls are 216 feet in height. If a furlong or stadia is 16 600 feet, then it is indeed. 1,500 miles-ish. This, friends, is a reminder that God is not limited by the things that restrict us. The engineers in our congregation, no doubt, are already doing pencil things, maybe even on the back of an offering envelope, about how this would work out, how many bricks you would need, how many layers of Uh, uh, pieces of lumber you would need to build a city of that size? How many pieces of steel and and the linear feet and all, all those other numbers? And to think about how you would assemble a city like this is just overwhelming. I want to tell you today, God is not overwhelmed. This is the home that he's been preparing for us from the foundations of the world. Remember how I said a minute ago, we're going to peg out on the good news side today? Here it is. The place that Jesus talked about, in John 14, here it is. This is it. Let us move on to the last section of it. God is there, so there's no need for a temple. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is The Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What the city doesn't have... It doesn't need a temple. Go with me back to that section in Exodus that we are in right now, reading through in our Bible reading plan. And by the way, if you're interested in that and you haven't started it, no worries. Just pick up one and grab and jump in with us in the middle of Exodus. It's awesome, you'll love it. The Exodus narrative tells us about the tabernacle, the first symbolic presence of God and his presence among men this tabernacle it was to be representative of god's presence with his people when they settled in jerusalem and king david wanted to make it a permanent marker oh he didn't get to god said your hands have blood on them but your son will and so constructed solomon's temple solomon's temple one of the most glorious structures of the ancient world It is an outstanding example of what God can do when he chooses to and what he can allow people to do. Friends, I want to tell you that beautiful temple is still, at least in our imagination and in the pages of Scripture, is a remarkable example of God's presence among his people. When it was destroyed, Zerubbabel's temple took its place, a shadow of what Solomon's temple had been, but it was the same, a symbol of God's presence with his people. It was replaced by Herod's temple, the first century. It's the temple that Jesus went to. It is the place where the the events of the New Testament took place, and the, the shadow of it is still looming over the New Testament, destroyed in 70 A.D., but before it was, it was a marker of God's presence among his people. And the reason we don't have it anymore is because when Jesus died on the cross and was raised back to life, he did something in each of us. Here's a really good part. You're going to love this. We ourselves, those in Christ, are the temple now. Wow. We are the markers of God's presence among his people because we carry him within us. And now we jump to Revelation 21 where there is no temple, because God himself is present and needs no intermediary. He doesn't need you to carry him. He doesn't need a temple to dwell in. He is simply there with us. And that, friends, is what makes heaven, heaven. Best of all, there's no night no more curse you know it's been six years this week since I was diagnosed with non-hodgkin's lymphoma six years sometimes it seems like I was never sick at all sometimes it seems like it was last week the The thing that stands out most in my mind, though, is the first night that I spent in the hospital. It seemed like the night was interminable. You ever had one of those? It seemed like the sun would never come up, that it would always be night. I tried to push it back with television, and that brought me no peace. And I tried to pray my way through it, and that was the only thing that brought some measure of it, but I, can't, I just couldn't stop thinking about how long that night was. God, will daylight ever come? And when daylight finally did break, I've never been more grateful to see it come. To think of a time when there is no night, no more curse. My mind can't even get there. See, the curse has always been here, at least as far as we know. Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19, that's where you'll find the curse begins. God proclaimed it because of our sin, and it stays because of the sin that still is among us. Here in Revelation 21 is where it ends. Don't misunderstand me. The curse was broken at the cross. It has no more influence. It has no more strength over those of us in Christ. But it's still here. And it still trips us up from time to time. In Revelation 21, the curse is pushed away for the final time. And that brings us to the last thing the task of eternity bringing glory to God. And many questions exist about the nature of our existence in heaven. What will we do? What will we be? What do our glorified bodies look like? How do we get them? Sadly, almost all those questions are unanswerable. This is the full extent of the testimony we have about heaven. God apparently simply did not want us to know more. He simply asks us, To trust him, that it'll be worth the wait. What we can know are at least three things, and with this I'll close. One, we shall be with Jesus. According to Romans 8, whatever Jesus has coming, we do too. If that doesn't humble you, friends, let it soak in a little while. We are co-heirs with Jesus. And being with him will be enough. Brings us to the next thing. We shall be co-heirs with him in his inheritance. So what he has coming, I get to share in. Now what right do I have? Oh, none whatsoever on my own accord. There's nothing that I've done or even can imagine doing that would be good enough to earn God's favor at the level of his son. Aren't you glad, friends? It's not about you. Our experience in heaven will not be because we earned it. It will be because Jesus gave it to us. There's a powerful theological term that I want you to be introduced to, perhaps if you've never heard it. It's the word imputed. It means that Jesus came down and put something over our shoulders simply because we proclaimed his faith, our faith in him. Let us finish with this. We shall reign with him. We shall reign with him. I ask you again, friends, what right do we have to earn this? None whatsoever. And yet, this is the gift that is given to us. Now, now is your turn to respond. As you're winding things up and putting your pens and things away, make sure that you're not putting your spirit away. For it is possible that Jesus has something he wants to whisper into your heart. Maybe you have made an idol of heaven if I can just get there. Friends, it is not the mansion over the hilltop that I most long for in heaven. It is the presence of the Savior that paid for my entrance. Maybe you have discovered today that this moment is for you and that Jesus came to give you something too, but you've never received that gift. See, this is the thing about a gift. I can give you the most amazing gift you can imagine, but it doesn't become a gift until you receive it. Maybe you need to open the gift that God has given you through Jesus right here today. Perhaps you need someone to pray with you about how to do so, how to invite Jesus into your life, what it means to recommit yourself to his direction. Let today be the day that you meet me down here and let's talk about it. Maybe. Today is the day you need to come to this altar and talk to the Lord about something that's breaking your heart, burdening you, something that you know is breaking someone else's heart and you're worried for them, you're concerned. This altar is open for you. Perhaps you, like so many others already, need to be baptized to take that first step of Christian obedience. We're going to do baptism next week. It's your chance to say, I want in. Come down and let's talk about that. Let's pray together. Today, Lord Jesus, we have heard your word and we rejoice in the goodness it gives to us. We receive this good word about heaven and we thank you today that it is not because of what we've done that we get to go there. It's because of what you've done. I know, Jesus, that you, you long for us to receive that gift. So now, here today, this moment, we say, Lord, we want it. Not what we can get out of it, but we just want you. Would you do that in our lives now, Lord Jesus? I pray, Father, your spirit to move. Draw those that are weary and trying to do it on their own. Thank you, Jesus, we don't have to. Let today be the day that we stamp our ticket this home. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray.